Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Tuesday, June 27th. Now, this is our Twilight Zone episode. I'll explain it in a minute here. Tuning in, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ. This is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment. Now, like I said, I'm yesterday, I'm out of town. Now, this is our Twilight Zone episode because something weird has occurred to me. Well, it hasn't occurred yet. It will, it will occur by the time this gets aired. And that is that somehow Tuesday will be ridiculously short for me so short it it will be like not having a tuesday at all you're thinking huh what yeah because this weird thing happens (laughs) this weird thing happens when you fly to australia and that is is that you cross the international date line and because of the way that it all works what little of a tuesday experience i will have it'll be very close to not having a tuesday because I leave LAX on a Monday and I land 15 hours later on a Wednesday morning. Mm-hmm. So uh, so I have to record this ahead of time because I will not be traveling through Tuesday. Yeah, it's the weirdest thing. I won't really get to experience Tuesday. And now that I'm thinking about it, I'm kind of sad. I I like Tuesdays better than Monday. But so on Tuesday... June 27th, 2017, you'll you'll always be the Tuesday that I never really got to enjoy. <laughs> my, my apologies. Yeah, I'm a little loopy here because of all the extra work I'm doing in preparation for the the conference and you know and oh and I had to get, it, it's a long story, but anyway. So what we're doing today, Stephen Kozar has I mean, just done a yeoman's work trying to help me out a little bit here and uh, and help you, the listening audience of Fighting for the Faith, ease you through the the long stretch that we're going to have without any episodes of Fighting for the Faith. Keep in mind, next week is a holiday in the United States anyway. I mean, it, it's a four-day weekend. And so, you know, we're, it, it won't be as bad if you kind of factor that into it. But we're not back in uh, full production until July 10th, Lord willing. So... Um, it, but today we're going to be listening to Stephen Kozar as he has had another conversation with Pastor Matt Richard about the, will the real Jesus please stand up kind of thing. So uh, let's get right to it. No commercial interruptions. Here is Stephen Kozar and Matt Richard. 
Okay, once again, I'm on the line with Pastor Matt Richard. Welcome, Pastor Richard. Hey, it's good to be here, Steve. So last time we were talking about your wonderful new book, and um, I gave it so much praise that I'm not going to give it any more praise because, you know, I don't want you to get a big head and turn into one of those celebrity authors. <laughs> nice. It's, <laughs> nice. It's uh, uh, the will the, real, will the Real Jesus Please Stand Up, 12 False Christ. We got up to The Giver of Bling, and um, if anybody hasn't listened to that conversation, I think it was a really good interview. And, you know, somebody – commented on Facebook and said that this was the best interview ever. Did you see that? You know, I did, I did hear some comments where uh, they they uh, they were mentioning how much they appreciated it. I, you know, yeah, it was a very fun conversation. I, I mentioned to someone that when we got done with the interview, it was almost like, you know, just you and I were sitting around uh, having a drink together, having a good conversation, you know, Longtime friends conversing about some really neat uh, topics. So, well, good. Yeah, it was really, really fun. I so. try really hard to make it interesting and not to be, you know, too serious or too funny and all that stuff because I'm I'm new at this. So um, I really appreciate that. And I, whoever it was that said that it was the best interview ever, I love you. You're my best friend in the entire world. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so, so for those of you who don't know, um, Pastor Matt wrote this really cool book. And you've been working on the idea for a number of years, and it just came out. And it's I, I love this book because it's so packed full of really, really useful information. It's very informative. It's It, it just uh, pulls you right in, and it's it's an easy read. Uh, it, I think you've done a great job of balancing the idea of you know really serious ideas but also being easy to read. And basically you took all these different um, false understandings of who Jesus is, which is really a false Christ, and you gave them a name, and you wrote a chapter about each of them. And we got up to uh, – I'll just review them. The mascot, the option among many, the good teacher, the therap- therapist, and the giver of bling. And now we're on to the national patriot, who is about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, the American dream. Tell us about this this false understanding of who Jesus is. Yeah, the national patriot. I actually met the national patriot several years ago. Uh, it was a Saturday evening, and I came into the church I was serving, and uh, it was uh, you know a darker night. And then I, I came in, and I noticed the lights were on in the sanctuary, and I went in there. And I heard some mumbling up front, and so I was a little bit startled. I didn't know you know what was going on. Uh, if somebody was hurt, or if we were being robbed, and you know I said, "Excuse me," and uh, two ladies were up front, and. They were kind of startled, and, and I came up, and I asked them what they were doing, and they kind of hesitated and mumbled, but then they finally said to me, they said, well, uh, pastor, uh, the senior pastor asked us to move uh, the Christian flag and the American flag away from the altar about two inches every week. And I'm like, what on earth are you talking about? And it turns out that uh, what had happened was the senior pastor wanted to move uh, the uh, Christian flag and the American flag for the reason and the purpose of that they were too close to the altar. He wanted to separate them out. He wanted to uh, uh, show that there's a difference between the uh, state, which would be represented by the flag, and the altar, which would be uh, representative of the church. And they were too close together. And as a result of it, uh, long story short, there's an individual that got pretty upset, pretty heated about uh, moving the flag. And as the story unfolds, uh, came to realize that this guy named Jack had actually subscribed to a false Christ, which was a mingling of the two kingdoms, the state and the church. And as you mingle the state and the church together, you get an Americanized uh, view of, of Jesus, a national patriot, what we call, which is not the real Christ, but a false Christ. Mm-hmm. 
Boy, I I just read through that again this morning, and uh, it made me think about something that's related, but it's not exactly the same thing. And that is uh, Brian Wolfmuller's book, Has American Christianity Failed?, which uh, is another really, really great book from another young up-and-coming Lutheran pastor slash writer. And it's not exactly the same thing, but there is a very particular version of Christianity that comes out of America from a number of different uh, influences, not just one one guy or one movement even. But if you're an, if an evangelical who's a Christian in America today – they not only have a lot of very particular and unique and, and frankly, sometimes really wrong theology, they also have that combined with the, the thing you were just talking about, this idea that being a Christian and being an American are almost the same exact thing, and that America is, is this new Jerusalem. It's, it's just so way off. And man, um, I hate to say it, but I, I don't have a lot of hope for America as a country that's getting a lot better. I see it as a country that's actually getting worse in just about every way. And that's only going to um, make it more difficult for people who hold that view to kind of hang on to that version of Christianity. Yeah, absolutely. But it's good to get rid of that version of Christianity because it's not true anyway, you know? Right, right. Yeah, absolutely. When, when you look at that, uh, you know, when, when you mingle the two together, and, and I mean, this is a whole other debate that could go on for a long time that we could have a long conversation about is whether or not America has a uh, Christian foundation. Um, I think it's very, very clear uh, for sure that the uh, founding fathers were deists, uh, for sure. But then we could go in the big debate whether or not they were actual, you know, um, uh, Bible-believing, Christ-centered Christians. I mean, that that's a whole different conversation. But, but nonetheless, um, this idea that, you know, when we take the uh, state and we mix it with the Church, and when we put them too close together, what ends up happening, typically the loser in that is not going to be the state, it's going to be the Church. Mm. Uh, we have to keep in mind that the uh, Church rules by the Word and Sacrament, and the state rules by the sword. And so when we mingle those, though, uh, the uh, tactics of ruling by the sword then actually bleed into the Church. And the next thing you know, the Church is trying to rule by the sword, and that's never the intent and purpose. Uh, the, the sword is indeed uh, used by the state to keep civil order and justice, but the Church uh, rules by the sword of the Word of God, uh, huh. the ministry of the Word and Sacrament, which is fundamentally different. And so it's almost, you know, almost like a law-gospel parallel. You know, we, we distinguish law and gospel as Christians, God's uh, law from Mount Sinai and His gospel from Mount Calvary. But then what can happen when we look at the Church and the state, uh, the state definitely rules by the sword, which is going to be law, so that there's order, so that there's peace and harmony, and then in the midst of that peace and harmony, the Church ministers the Word and Sacraments. But again, if we mingle those two, uh, we, don't, we don't end up having, uh, you know, some sort of uh, enhanced view of Christianity. Usually, uh, Christianity gets gobbled up by the state, hmm. and you get this, mish, this mushy middle. And in Christ, as the person of Christ, uh, he becomes lost, and we end up with some sort of national patriot that is promoting the American dream, and not the message of Christianity. Hmm. Yeah, the, the promotion of the American dream is so prevalent, and it only works if you're, um, you know, all the all the um, circumstances of your life are appropriate to that. If 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 you grew up in the inner city and you come from a really bad family with a real troubled history, there's a really good chance that you're not going to relate to any of that stuff because it doesn't apply. And and even more so if you grew up in a third world country where they don't have any of the opportunities that we have. You just, it, 
Christianity should be the thing that is universal for all people in the entire world, you know, it's, which is really obvious to say. But so did we summarize that pretty good or should we talk about it a little bit more? Because that's a really deep subject. Well, I, th- I think the biggest thing for the listeners to understand is that, um, again, there's, there's two uh, realms that mm-hmm. we have, and we, we see these two realms dating all the way back to uh, the Israelites uh, when they were in captivity to the Assyrians and the Babylonians, and then you find the nation of Israel living in captivity, so you have the ruler of the state, which is essentially going to be the Babylonians or the Assyrians, and later on it was the Romans in the first century A.D., you had the Romans uh, establishing their left-hand kingdom, the kingdom of the state, and then you had the right-hand kingdom. And Jesus really, he, he distinguishes these two by saying, you know, give unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and unto God what is God's. And, and so we see the distinguishing characteristics of the left-hand and the right-hand kingdom. And the Apostle Paul, in the later portions of uh, the Epistle of Romans, um, with the later, the later part of uh, Romans, we hear the Apostle uh, Paul talking about uh, that the left-hand kingdom, the state, is established by God. And uh, so we definitely want to distinguish the two. And, and again, when we, when we mix those together, when we mix those together, we end up getting a, a false Christ. The state, the, the ideologies of the state, the American dream, actually bleed into uh, the Jesus of the Bible, and we end up with a national patriot or Americanized view of Jesus. And again, the story that I share in the book of these, these women moving the flag uh, the pastor wanted to distinguish between those two kingdoms, and the American flag was just too close to the altar, which was creating this Americanized national patriot view of Jesus. And But by moving that, uh, this guy Jack in the church, he was extremely offended, because if you're going to attack uh, you know, or, or criticize America, you're criticizing his national patriot. Uh, whereas if you have the distinguishing characteristics of both the state and the church, you can actually be critical of the state, uh, with respect, um, but, but not really undercut uh, the real Christ, because we know that the real Christ is not amalgamated with the state. So that's the key characteristic there, is that mm-hmm. when we mix the left and the right-hand kingdom, we get a false Christ, but when we distinguish them properly in their proper roles, then we can embrace and understand the real Jesus for us. Yeah, yeah. I, I've been amazed when I've thought about how Jesus and the apostles said so little about government and about our, our relationship to to the state. It wasn't a big topic. It was almost non-existent, almost, not completely, but... And then when... Um, I think a lot of people who are not Christians see Christians constantly talking about who to vote for and, and the issues that are so important to, to bring to the public's attention. There's this kind of, um, I think, a misunderstanding that Christians are supposed to be salt and light. And what that means is we're supposed to uh, enact laws that ensure that our version of morality, God's version of morality, is what, what what's being promoted throughout the country. And and while that's true, that's not our primary purpose as Christians. It's to preach the gospel. I don't know if that's too simplified, if I've simplified that well, too much, but... Yeah, yeah, very good. You know, one thing I like to say is that we don't need more Christian lawmakers. We don't need more Christian lawyers. We don't need more Christian doctors. We don't need more Christian professors. We actually need doctors who are Christians, we need lawmakers that are Christians, and we need dentists and professionals and professors and so forth that are Christians. And so it's a matter of vocation, um, the, the hat that we wear. And so we understand uh, that every person wears several hats, several vocational hats. And so I wear 
I wear the hat of a pastor. That's my vocation as, as a job, as a calling. And I wear a hat as a husband and a dad. I mean, those are two other hats. And then I wear a hat as a citizen, you know, in that left-hand kingdom, uh, trying to be a good citizen of the uh, town that I live in. And so we all have these different hats that we wear. And uh, so when, when, when we talk about this, we want to have good lawmakers, people that are, are in that left-hand kingdom, you know, with that hat on as a lawmaker, <clears throat> but we want them to be Christians, that, that, that they're, they're informed by their Christian understanding of the Word and Sacraments. And so um, I have a really good friend here in North Dakota. Uh, he's in the um, uh, House of Representatives for uh, the state. And, uh, you know, we, we visit together, and he's a wonderful lay theologian. Um, but, you know, he doesn't come into the, uh, uh, you know, go into Bismarck, North Dakota, and um, slam down and say, I'm a Christian, so therefore you listen to me. You know, he comes in as a competent lawmaker, being informed by, uh, you know, a biblical, philosophical worldview of the world, and he comes in as a lawmaker, understanding law and gospel, and he functions in that left-hand kingdom properly, uh, executing laws that are just and whole, but he, he's not a Christian lawmaker, he's a lawmaker who is a Christian. Hmm. And there again, we distinguish the two kingdoms. Yeah, you know, that's exactly what my wife uh, is involved in. She's a uh, administrative assistant for an assemblyman in our, in our state government here, because we live right next to Madison. And he's a, well, he's a Lutheran who was for many years a really uh, admired and I guess you'd say successful school teacher who went into government to serve. And uh, it's exactly the same sort of thing. And it's not the norm, unfortunately. A lot of people get into politics for other reasons, but he really saw it as a way for him to to do some good in his state. And he looks at things through the eyes of a Christian, but not necessarily like I'm going to, I'm going to force my my views on everybody else because I you know I have to dominate. So right, yeah, right. that's a that's an interesting topic. But I don't want to I don't want to dwell on it anymore because there's a bunch of other good stuff you've got here. So let's go to the next one, the social justice warrior who is all about liberating the oppressed from unjust economic, political, spiritual, and social conditions. Man, this is huge. I've seen my kids' generation, the millennial generation. Really, if they if they maintain their Christian faith at all, they're veering towards this version of Christianity in large numbers. Give us a little bit more input about what that means and that viewpoint. Yeah, well, this one, this social justice warrior um, false crisis is definitely on the rise in the last 10 years, mm-hmm. uh, definitely the last 10 years. And, and, and here's the thing. Um, it's very, very tricky to pick up on. Like many of these false crises, uh, they're very, very difficult uh, to kind of pinpoint because they sound so much like the real thing. Um, but then when you look at them a little bit closer, you can see where the uh, fundamental problems are. And the fundamental problem with this false crisis is simply this, is that uh, what the person ends up doing is they, they create a construct, a, a, a view of humanity into categories. Uh, let me explain that here. So we, we look at humanity in the categories of, of uh, the privileged and then the under uh, underprivileged, or we look at the uh, categories of the um, oppressed and the oppressors, uh, the victims and the persecutors. So we create two categories: one category is of the lesser uh, uh, lesser people who have been hurt or who are put underneath somebody else's thumb. They're victims. They're oppressed. Um, they're underprivileged. And then you have another category of people which these are going to be the bad guys. They are the privileged. They're the oppressors. They're the um, unjust economic and social uh, context of people. And they are the ones who are constantly exerting pressure upon a lesser group of people. And so what happens is the social justice warrior 
ideology kicks in where that you come along with the intent and the purpose of liberating those that are misfortuned, those that are oppressed, those that have uh, um, that that are being held down by another group. And so what happens is this, is then you take and you see Jesus with this construct that Jesus was a Messiah who came to help the oppressed. Uh, he was one who fought against those big old bad Pharisees who were the oppressors, those who uh, were in the position of power and authority. And so Jesus then becomes this social justice warrior where he's all about liberating those who um, have bad economic status, those who are in categories of, of uh, uh, un, you know, underprivileged. Uh, so this false crisis is then all about liberating people from bad economic systems. He's all about liberating people from uh, social uh, unjust um, situations. And so he's changed from a savior of all the world to just a savior of those who are oppressed. Yeah. I've thought about this for years. People who don't really read the Bible very thoroughly, don't go to church that encourages that, or maybe don't go to church at all. You can make up any kind of Jesus you want. And this this guy is pretty cool. You know, he's like the um he's like the hippie slash Indiana Jones Jesus. You know, hey man, I'm you know, I'm <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna help the oppressed and the poor and and then you just take on whatever um you know political agenda Social political agenda that you know you you imagine this Jesus would also be taking on. Yeah, yeah, and here's the fundamental problem: is this is number one, who defines you know who uh, who qualifies for the oppressed category? Oh, yeah. I mean, we have to. Yeah, so I mean, you can really make that of of anybody. So the first thing is you have to define you know how who gets to define that, and then the second thing is this: is that uh, when it comes to this it puts Jesus in favor with only a select group of people, and then he is their friend because he's there to liberate them. And then everybody else who is oppressing, well, then Jesus is an enemy. There's no redemption, there's no forgiveness, there's no hope for them, uh, because this false Christ has uh, no compassion, nothing whatsoever for them. And then thirdly, uh, when we look at this, this false Christ is all about liberating not from sin, uh, not from the devil, not from the wrath of God, but he's right. about liberating about some temporary, this life, economic, uh, social, or some sort of problematic thing in this life only. So he does nothing to do, he has nothing to do with liberating us from death. He has nothing to do about liberating us from the condemnation of sin and the wrath of God. And so fundamentally the problem with this is that when it comes to the Bible, there's no doubt about it that there are going to be some people who are oppressed and some who oppress. But the reality is, according to the Bible, there's only one category, and that category is of sinner. And so, uh, biblically speaking, Christianity-wise, the whole goal is not to just liberate one person or one group from another group. The whole point of Christianity is to liberate all of humanity from our oppressive hearts. And so the person who is being oppressed, as much as they may have misfortune in their life, they need to be rescued from sin, death, and the devil. And that person who is oppressing, they need to be rescued from sin, death, and the devil. And they both, both sides need to be brought to repentance. Yeah. And then in repentance and forgiveness and uh, absolution in the real Jesus, then can there be total healing that can exert and come forth from that. Right. You know, another aspect of this particular misunderstanding of Christianity is the idea that 
there may not even be a heaven or a hell. There may be no afterlife at all. Maybe what Christianity is, is all about is making the world a better place right now. I've heard that from people who have been really uh, altering what they believe over the over the years. And the two kind of go hand in hand, because if there is no heaven and hell, you know, you can say, well, number one, Jesus didn't die to save you from from hell. And if you're all focused on heaven, well, then that means you're not focused on, on earth and you're not doing what you should be to make the world a better place. That's, you know, there's a little bit of truth in that. It is possible that you could be ignoring the needs of your neighbors and not making the world a better place in some way. But again, it goes back to, well, that's not the fundamental reason why Jesus came and died on the cross, so that you could somehow make the world a better place. He died on the cross to pay for your sins. So, Right, right. And, and you know, when it really comes down to this, I mean, fundamentally, this this false Christ actually subscribes, again, to the social justice warrior ideology, but the, the reality is the social justice ideology is not new. It, it, dates, it dates itself all the way back to Marxist ideology. And so in the book, we actually have a little footnote talking about how, you know, really, you know, Ecclesiastes is right. I mean, Solomon's right. There's nothing new under the sun. History repeats itself. There's no such thing as a new heresy. There's no such thing as a new ideology out there. It's just recirculated. And so what we see at work today in the social justice warrior ideology, especially with this false Christ, is really Marxist um, ideology at work, uh, but just repackaged in our you know, 21st century. Yeah, and um, if you are of the idea, you're of, of the opinion that you want to be a, a social justice warrior, you want to you know, do your part to um, to relieve the oppressed, and that maybe in the name of Jesus. But that means you have to acquire power for yourself so that you can do things that you think are important to do. So now, so now you become a power broker. Now you get involved in politics, or you get involved in in some way of acquiring power for yourself so that you can go and do these things. Well, now, wait a minute. I thought you said that the powerful were the bad guys. You know, so. It's, it, when, you're right. When you say that there's this um, kind of a false dichotomy between these two categories of people, the oppressed and the oppressors, well, if you want to be part of the oppressed, you have to fundamentally remove yourself from power, which means you can't even help them, you know, because in order to help people, you got to be able to do stuff that they can't do for themselves. You have to somehow acquire power. You have to acquire money. And now you're becoming part of that group that you previously just said was the bad guy. So, yeah, it's a... It's a pretty incoherent system, but again, like all these things, it has some truth to it, and it, it is confusing. But I, I think you've done a really good job of summarizing it. Let's keep going, because this, this next one, I think, kind of ties in, and that's the moral example, who emphasizes moralistic living at the expense of forgetting the cross. This is another false understanding of who Jesus is and what it means to be a Christian. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, with the moral example in Chapter 8, we, we end up meeting someone named Ruby, and uh, Ruby is pretty worked up. Uh, it's, uh, I'm, I'm, the story goes where I'm at a, a chapel service uh, doing a chapel for some assisted living, uh, uh, assisted living complex for a group of women. And she's pretty frustrated because um, I'm not necessarily moving on to the full gospel, as she says. And so uh, she said, you know, you, you, you're very stern on the law and you preach the gospel, but you did not preach the full gospel. And the full gospel is you didn't tell us how to live. You didn't tell us um, what it means to, uh, you know, follow Christ as a moral example. And so she was really, really wanting, um, you know, first of all, she was confusing the gospel, understanding that uh, for her the gospel was not only about uh, what Jesus did, but it was also about what Jesus told us to do. 
And so she was uh, having a very, very complex view and misinformed view of the gospel. But here, here, you know, let's back up just a little bit here. Here's her fundamental problem. And, and uh, she's probably one of the most complex in the whole book, Ruby is. But what her problem is, is that she has failed to see the ongoing effects of her sin. And so she sees people in this world as sinners, but when they are converted, or when they make a decision for Jesus, or when they uh, commit their life to Christ, whatever terminology that is being used um, in that respect, then they cease to have the ongoing effects of original sin, this condition of sin. And so for Ruby, sin has been reduced from a condition of the human heart to more so just uh, bad actions that are controlled by the person. So Ruby has a view that she can actually control um, how much she sins and how much she doesn't sin. So therefore, when she hears a sermon, she, she, you know, she hears the gospel, which she's like, yeah, 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 I get that. That applied back when I was uh, first became a Christian. But mm-hmm. now, because I have an elevated will, because I am uh, just a little bit less sinful than I was at one time, I don't need to have the Jesus that died on the cross. I needed that Jesus way back in the day yeah. when I needed to be saved. But now I need a Jesus who is going to give me a moral example so that I can follow that and enact my superior will to walk successfully and walk in my best life now. So that's fundamentally her problem. She doesn't want to believe in dying cross because she already had that back when she was converted, but now she needs the moral example to give her a checklist of how she can live a successful life. Yeah, and I was thinking about what you you know, this is this is a person that you it's based on a real person, but it's not specifically one real person. So let's just go with the idea that this is a real person. I'm picturing her in her mind, what she wants is a sermon that basically makes her feel better about the progress that she's making and encourages her in her progress while ignoring the fact that deep down she's still a, a, a totally depraved sinner. And this is a, a real common trait in the kind of the typical Southern Baptist fundamentalist uh, theological framework where sermons are all based around, you know, we're not doing enough and you're not doing enough and maybe I'm not doing enough, but we got to get out there. And so people are almost wanting to feel guilty. But I think more than that, what they really want is to feel like they're better than the other guy sitting next to them. They want the preacher to be talking to the other people in the church who aren't doing quite as much as they are. But it, it ultimately is just bringing everybody down or it's making them self-righteous, that kind of preaching. And I, I, that's what I was picturing that Ruby was trying to get you to do more of as, a, as opposed yeah, to just – Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah and, and then the, the fundamental problem, again, is Ruby does not understand – uh, Romans 7, uh, that we're simultaneously at the same time sinner and saint. And what we mean by that when we say we're simultaneously sinner and saint is that until the very end of the day, until my very last breath, I carry around my neck this old Adam, the sinful nature, um, the sinful nature that I have. And so uh, for Ruby, this whole idea of being a sinner uh, really kind of seized at that point when she was, uh, you know, became a Christian. So for her, if she talks about uh, sin, it's usually going to be in the past tense. So she's going to talk about her conversion in the past tense, whereas um, I would say biblical Christianity, we talk about, you know, I was saved, I am being saved, and I will continue to be saved. It's an ongoing saving that I need every single day. It's like a like an ongoing shower, being in that shower all the time, being cleansed constantly uh, from the Lord Jesus Christ, being enveloped in His righteousness. And so for Ruby, though, 
she sees all that all that gospel in the past tense. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I was saved, I, I was forgiven, and now it's all about an elevated will because she has fundamentally failed to understand that she's simultaneously sinner and saint. So she has elevated her view of mankind. And this is the fundamental problem with all of these false Christs. When we elevate our understanding of mankind, we actually, uh, you know, how, how would we say this? We diminish Jesus. Right. And so the, the, the greater we see that our need, uh, the greater that we see our uh, sin, the greater the Savior that we're going to need. Uh, but the more that we see ourselves puffed up and able, then the lesser of a Savior that we will need. Um, I'm reminded of, I believe it's John Newton, he once said, he's, a, he's an old hymn writer, mm-hmm. and he, he wrote once, he said, I know two things in my life, that I am a great sinner, but I have an even greater Savior. And I just mm-hmm. love that. Yeah, I remember um, that phrase. Great. Yeah, it's just great. So, so with Ruby, she has actually uh, elevated herself, which has diminished uh, Jesus, the Jesus that she needs. But again, when we see ourselves not as elevated, but when we see ourselves truly as sinners in thought, word, and deed, then we need much more than just a mere moral example. We need the Savior, the true Savior, that bled and died and rose from the grave, all for the forgiveness of our sins. Would you say that you see the Christian life as being more cyclical as opposed to being linear? Because that's the that's the phrase that I thought of that helps me kind of visualize it. That if if you the, the typical pop evangelical understanding of our life is that at some point or another we raise our hand, we make a decision for Jesus, and then the rest of our life is morally improving ourselves and and showing our devotion to Jesus. He died for you. Now what are you going to do for him? That's a linear understanding. Whereas uh, a Lutheran cyclical idea is that you go to church every week to be absolved of your sin and to receive the gospel and to be reminded by the law of your sin, but to be reminded also that Jesus died for that very reason and we're refreshed and renewed, but it happens over and over again. It doesn't happen just once. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, we are in a culture that thinks very linear. I mean, no doubt, no, no doubt about it. With our industrial age of the industrial line of starting with a product you know, a small, tiny widget, and then we work it through the line, it becomes a bigger widget, more complex, and then we get it off the production line, and we say, look, waha, you know, you know, man, look, bam, there it is. Hmm. So we, we think linear, um, but I think uh, the better way of looking at Christianity would be, indeed, uh, more of a circle. We think of uh, John, the Apostle John, uh, the Gospel of John and First John and the Book of Revelation are all written in a circular fashion, hmm. um, and that's where we get so much problem with the Book of Revelation. We read it as if it's linear, but it's not. It's to be read in a circle hmm. over and over and over. And so the Christian life is indeed like that. Um, I'm often reminded of Martin Luther's morning and evening prayer. And the morning prayer, uh, when you wake up, you make the sign of the cross, you remember who you are in Christ, and you pray that uh, you would be protected and kept from all sin and danger for the day. And at the very end of the night, <laughs> what do you pray? God, forgive me for all the sin that I did. And so in the next morning, you wake up, you do the same thing. And even every single week in our, in our Lutheran church, um, you know, that what we have is we, we come in and the first thing we do is we say, God, I've, con- I've sinned in thought, word, and deed. Please forgive me. And then we hear the word, we receive the sacrament, and we go in his forgiveness and his love. And then next week we come back again, and guess what? <laughs> God, I'm a poor, miserable sinner. Please forgive me. And this occurs every single week, 52 uh, you know, Sundays out of the year um, for our whole entire life. And so, indeed, it is always returning 
you know, to begin is to return, uh, to, to, to uh, progress is to return. So uh, as we progress in this life, as we move forward in, the, in this life, we're always returning back to the source of our hope, which is Jesus Christ, who is the beginning and the end. Uh, he's not just a mere starting point. Hmm. Well, I got to bring up one more thing that I thought of when I read this chapter, and that is Charles Finney. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I could go on a huge tangent here, but I, I wrote a Charles Finney uh, cornucopia of false doctrine a few months back, where I just collect a lot of really good articles about him, and then I, I just wrote a just a few pages of information. A lot of people don't understand the role that he's played in American evangelicalism. Finney was a revivalist in the 1800s, and he was not trained theologically. He actually didn't really like theology at all. He was a very practical guy who said, I'm just going to get out there and save souls. I'm going to get them to make decisions, just like I made a decision myself. So this this idea of decisional theology really has a, a lot of its foundation in Finney. He's not the only one, but he's one of the main guys. But the thing that really kills me about Charles Finney was that he didn't like the idea that Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins once and for all. He thought that was offensive, and he thought if you preach that, people wouldn't go out and do good, and they wouldn't make the world a better place or whatever. He actually caught, he, so he, I don't know if he's the guy that invented it, but he believed in the, the, the moral, uh, what's the actual name of the model of atonement? The model is called the, the moral, oh, I have it in my article. I should have brought that up. The moral example atonement theory, something something to that extent. But he said, once you're saved, now you just go out and work really hard. And, you know, if you sin, well, your sins aren't forgiven anymore. You got to, you know, work it off. You got to, it's just a really relentless thing. And he probably had a lot of, uh, I, he didn't probably have, he had a lot of personal stamina, just like Pelagius. He was a very moral person who was able to, by his strong willpower, able to live more morally than the people around him. So he was like, come on, everybody, be moral like me. That's what Jesus expects from you. And it's so ingrained in our pop American evangelical culture that uh, I, I hope that it's really refreshing when people hear what you're saying in this book and what we're talking about right now. And I hope that, that they don't think that this leads to antinomianism. Because um, what, it, what it leads to is, I <laughs> frankly, I think it's like, I, I really prefer to, to live in reality as opposed to a fantasy world. And I'm sorry, but Christians who are just all excited about all the great progress they're making are living in a fantasy world. I, I was there. I remember thinking, I got to figure out how to really get rid of all my sin so I can show Jesus I really mean business. And I, I don't try to do that anymore because I know it's impossible. And I know that's why he died on the cross. So it all makes sense now to me. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, real, real briefly, when it comes to uh, Finney, I, you know, my blood starts boiling, too, yeah. when I hear about Finney. Uh, boy, yeah, what a, what a piece of work. I, I don't know how to say anything nice, uh, you know, put the best construction on Finney. Man, you know, he, he really is, in, you know, in the footsteps, very much like the old, uh, the old uh, uh, heretic from the 4th century, which was Pelagius. And, you know, for our listeners to understand, uh, Pelagius was a, I call, was a I called him Pelagius, who, didn't I? Pelagius. It's Pelagius. I was taking Pelagianism. Yeah, boy, I'm trying to, yeah, Pelagianism, yeah, Pelagianism, you always had an ism on it. But anyway, well, he, he was condemned um, more times as a heretic than any other person in the history of the Christian Church. And hmm. yet we see his theology arise in Charles Finney, and not only in Finney, but you turn on any 
uh, you know, popular American evangelical uh, preacher these days, and you hear that that uh, the spirit of uh, Pelagius and the the, the uh, ideology of Finney lives on, yeah. and they're completely oblivious that the ideology that they're holding to has been condemned as heresy more times in the history of the Church than any other heresy, I mean, for goodness sakes. And so it really is. It's really, really um, uh, very, very damning theology because it points us not to Jesus, it points us to ourselves. Exactly. And it actually elevates our will and what we think that we can do, and ultimately it comes back to us beating our breast and confessing and saying that I'm a poor, miserable sinner, I need Jesus, not only for the forgiveness of sins, but I need the Holy Spirit to be at work in the Word and Sacraments to enable me, to create in me a new heart, and to empower me uh, to live, to truly love my neighbor, and truly have faith in the Lord. And it's only then, when we're being motivated by the Spirit, that we actually can uh, see the true uh, uh, you know, the true uh, fruits of the Spirit, the true blessing of serving our neighbor, but everything else falls short when it's, you know, endeavored by our own will. Yeah. Well, I, when I first started hearing about and listening to some podcasts and lectures about Charles Finney, uh, my first reaction was, this doesn't seem possible. How could this be? I've I've heard about this man when I was a teenager. I listened to the music of Keith Green, and I got on their mailing list to get the last day's newsletter, and they had reprinted all these Charles Finney lectures and books, and I, and I thought this was real Christianity. And I had to hear it over and over and over again that, nope, that actually isn't real Christianity. And I, So one of the things that I try to do with my writing and stuff is – I, I try to get at the root of how we as a um, – well, as a people in general, but as an American Christian culture, we have a really hard time when something might be biblically very wrong, but it's so common and so prevalent and it's been going on for so long that we just can't imagine that it's wrong. It just it doesn't seem possible. There's always this, well, somebody would have said something by now. That can't be true because my pastor loves Charles Finney. And everybody else I know loves Charles Finney. Well, I'm like, I know, it's crazy, but let's look at what he said and let's actually evaluate it compared to Scripture. And you'll have to either decide that you just want to believe what all your friends in your own group believes, or you're going to have to go back to square one and, and say, do I really believe that God's Word is holy? And it's really God's word, or, or do I believe what my group says? You know, I think that's a big issue that I'm always trying to get to the core of. Anyway, I'm I'm sorry I went on a tangent, but this this really kind of gets me going. This whole topic of Finney and and this idea that we can morally improve ourselves, and 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 that the atonement doesn't actually do anything. That just kills me. That you know, what did Jesus die on the cross for? To set a moral example. That's the moral example. So, for just to, to clarify this to people who are listening, I know, I know, obviously, you know this, but what Finney taught was that when Jesus went to the cross, he was showing his obedience. He could have done any number of things. Dying on the cross was just what happened to happen uh, for whatever reason. But he wasn't dying on the cross to do something. He was dying on the cross to show us how far he would go and leading a moral example for us. And so now we look at Jesus dying on the cross, and instead of saying, wow, my sins were really bad, and I couldn't pay the price myself for my sins, and Jesus did it for me. Wow, I'm so grateful. Instead, we're supposed to look at Jesus dying on the cross and go, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be just as good as Jesus. I can do that. <laughs> you watch. You know, I'm exaggerating a bit, but that's basically what it means. Am I correct, or yeah. am I exaggerating a bit? You know, no, no. And the... the, the, the the proof is in the pudding, as they say, 
And so what ends up happening, as we hear with the ideology by Ruby embracing uh, the moral example, and as well as the ideology of, of Finney and so forth, is that when you go down this road, uh, what you end up having is you actually end up creating two types of Christians. And the one type of Christian is going to be prideful, um, saying, look at what I can do. And they're going to be a bunch of self-righteous jerks. And I can say that because I've gone this way of embracing Finney's theology myself. Hmm. And so I'm not, and I, I suspect the same as with you, we're not condemning something that we have no experience in, but I've embraced Finney's theology uh, in the past, and you end up being a self-righteous jerk thinking that you've got it all together. Um, or the opposite of the end of the spectrum is that you have no hope. And so what happens is when you go the way of Finney's theology, when you go the way of a false Christ called the moral example, you will bounce back and forth between pride and despair. And this is actually coming from Luther, and you mentioned this earlier too as well, mm-hmm. but it's just a vicious cycle where one day you wake up and you, you're, you're feeling great and you think that you've got it all together and you're doing it really well, but then the problem is you're a self-righteous jerk and everybody can see it except you, and then you wake up the next day and it's you're just not doing enough, and so you're in despair, wondering if I'm even saved, wondering if I'm even in Christ, if I'm even a Christian. And fundamentally, the answer to both of those is this, is that you can't do it, you know, so forget your pride, and you know what? Um, you can't do it, so yes, you're correct in despairing, but hear the good news mm-hmm. about the real Jesus Christ who did it for you, who accomplished everything on the cross as a complete and sheer gift. And then, from that, from that source, from that fountain of hope, then we are given the Holy Spirit, uh, we are given his, his, uh, the Word and Sacraments, and then that Lord Jesus Christ uh, creates in us uh, these wonderful fruits of the Spirit, and he creates and positions us in good works that were prepared in advance for us to walk in his gifts. And so it's a fundamentally different way of the Christian faith. Yeah. Uh, one is the way of despair, and uh, pride, and the other one is by the way of gift and receiving and joy, um, and then beating our breasts and confessing our sins when we do fall short. You know, and not, not only despair or pride, but there's also a really large element of confusion in that mixture, because that's where I was. I had moments of despair and moments of pride and a lot of confusion, because I was like, what am I supposed to do as a Christian? I don't get it. What is what is our role? Because I I felt like I was supposed to get better. I really did. I wanted to do more. I wanted to help God. I wanted to be his loyal servant. And I know I I knew I wasn't really doing it. So my for for years I was thinking, well, I gotta find a better teacher, I gotta find a better pastor, I gotta find the right book. And it was so freeing when I when I especially heard Chris Rosebro saying, I wake up every day and I'm and I'm I'm a sinner. And I was like, Oh, I hate it when he says that. But in the back of my mind I was thinking yeah, but I think you might be right. <laughs> you know, that might be the solution. Instead of trying to find the guy who's going to teach you how to be a great, you know, moral example, find the guy who's going to administer the gospel, which is which is what uh, I learned from my own uh, Lutheran pastor here here just down the road from me. So let's go on to the next one, though, because this ties in really closely to what we've been talking about, and that is the new Moses. This false Christ is called the new Moses, who's about giving new obscure laws that are used for a legalistic salvation and spiritual abuse. Yeah, with this new Moses, we meet a guy named Walter. And Walter is, again, I mean, boy, we, he's very, very similar to Ruby. Um, and uh, what happens is, long story short, uh, there's, a, there's a leader of the church, and he's having a uh, cold one. It's uh, scandalous, absolutely scandalous what yeah. this man is doing. Well, 
<laughs> well, he, he's having, first of all, we've got to keep in mind, he's having a beer in his backyard of his house while he's mowing, and Walter's walking through the alley, and he sees this. Actually, it's more of a and, safety concern, because uh, that means he's only mowing with one hand. That's the real problem. It's not a moral problem. <laughs> so he's going to run over a stump and ruin his lawnmower or something. <laughs> well, well, we have to keep in mind here, first of all, you know, he's not drinking in public, and second, he's not drunk. And, uh, you know, so this is all in the context of a private home in his backyard. And uh, Walter sees it, and now Walter just absolutely comes unglued. And uh, what's fundamentally interesting about Walter is he's making an accusation against this, this, this church leader who's having a beer. But then when questioned on this, you say, well, you know, Walter, is he sinning? Is this church leader sinning? So Walter is not comfortable outright saying that this leader has sinned by drinking a beer in his backyard, uh, but at the same time, he's condemning him. And so what this actually reveals is that he's appealing to a false Christ called the New Moses. And this New Moses is all about enacting new laws and new rules um, that are above and beyond the uh, Ten Commandments. And these new laws and these new rules uh, the fundamental problem about them is that since they're not really from the Bible, they can be used to condemn people, but they don't condemn them unto repentance of sin. They condemn them unto repentance of, of, of getting in line and shaping up and forming according to uh, the standards of this new Moses. And so fundamentally what's going on with Walter is, is indeed he's condemning this church leader, but when asked, you know, is this church leader sinning? Does he need repentance? Is he drunk? Because drunkenness is a sin, no doubt about it. Um, Walter won't commit to that, but yet he's condemning him. And so what this does is by condemning by a new law created by a new uh, false Christ, this new Moses false Christ, you're actually putting somebody into spiritual oppression. So you're condemning them, but you're not giving them an opportunity to confess it as sin and hear forgiveness. You're just basically holding them under a new law and then you tell them to get in line, and until they get in line, according to this new obscure law, uh, they will be constantly condemned. But not unto repentance and forgiveness, but unto the appeasement of this new hmm. obscure law that yeah. is created by the false Christ. Well, and um, I was thinking about how, in your example, Walter says that he's setting a bad example. He's a leader in our church. You know, somebody might drive by and see him drinking a beer in his backyard. And to me, that that describes somebody who has a very insufficient view of God's sovereignty. In other words, they have to uh, kind of play this part well enough that the outside world will look at them and say, you know what, I think I want to become a Christian now because they are doing everything just perfectly right in, in such a way that now I'm convinced of the truths of Christianity. And, you know, like 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 somebody actually in that town – in this example, is going to say, hey, uh, you know, so-and-so is drinking a beer. I guess I'm, I'm not going to go to their church or I'm not going to become a Christian or I'm going to give up my faith. All these things that it's just a terrible burden to place on ourselves and on our fellow Christians to think that, you know, God can't work in other people's lives because of dumb little things like having a beer. Well, fundamentally what's what's going on is is – is the other thing we have to keep in mind, the reason why Walter is so worked up about this is obviously some things that you stated there are totally yeah. correct. But the other part of it, too, the reason why he's so worked up is that he has subscribed to a new Moses uh, false Christ, and this new Moses false Christ has actually taken on adaptations of a cultural worldview, right. uh, more of a, a the temperance movement that, that occurred way back in the day. And so Walter has 
um, basically a, a morality view um, and, and, and a, a cultural understanding of the way that a Christian should look according to a certain specific cultural understanding. And he uses and appeals to this false Christ called the New Moses to back him up. And so when this person who is violating his cultural standards of what he believes a Christian should look like and be like, instead of appealing to the Ten Commandments, which is indeed our true norm, our true uh, you know, uh, source of understanding what is right and wrong, he doesn't appeal to that. He appeals to a false uh, law created by a false Christ, because what happens is he's wanting to validate and, and, and to affirm himself uh, he's uncomfortable by this person breaking the social norms of what he believes a Christian should be, and so it, it upsets him. And he also looks at this as a way of condemning this other elder, or this other church leader, uh, and putting him down so that he can validate himself, right. that he has it together, that he's following this law. And so fundamentally, he has created a, a false Christ, the new Moses, and he's created false law. And the problem with all this, and I mentioned this before, the problem with all this is by creating a false law, you're not allowing people to confess real sin. And when you can't confess real sin, you can't hear about a real Savior, and you're just left in this huge burden where you have nowhere to turn except to somehow dig your way out to earn the uh, uh, the accolades and the good graces of Walter again. And until you do, Walter is going to steam around and be upset and, and uh, grumble and complain and gossip and slander behind the person's back until his view of righteousness on these false laws is actually met. Yeah. Well, the lesson here, boys and girls, is don't be Walter. <laughs> and if you don't yeah. want to, and if you don't want to drink, that's that's great. That's actually totally good. You know, don't don't feel like you have to, but you know, th- we need to give freedom in these areas where God's word is, you know, not giving us rules. Let's not make them up. Gee whiz, there's <laughs> enough problems in the world. Well, and, and and here's the thing: is you know, just real quickly for our listeners to understand, you know, this is an issue of uh, what we call adiaphora, neither you know, forbidden nor commanded. Now. If, if this le- if this leader was was drunk in his backyard mowing his lawnmower and is going side to side and his lines <laughs> right. are crooked everywhere, well then yes absolutely Walter has a point and he needs to be approached by the pastor he needs to be approached by his friends and saying you know this is this is uncalled for you're a church leader you're drunk mm-hmm. uh, this is a sin you need to be brought to repentance um, so that's no doubt about it um, but here's here's the point. If a person is struggling with alcoholism, okay, so let's just say, you know, let's just say you and I, we go out, we go out to eat, and let's just say you have a history of, of alcoholism and so forth, um, you know, out of love for you, I'm going to order a Diet Coke. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to do that just out of serving you. That's just common sense, out of loving you. Uh, but let's just say you and I, we both go out and we, we go out with Walter, and Walter is 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 believing that in order to be a Christian, you have to follow one of these false laws, uh, and that he's put up in his mind, then I would say, you know, assuming, let's just say this new illustration that you and I are, have no problem with alcohol or anything like that, no background on that, and we're with Walter, then we would be compelled to order an alcoholic drink just to oppose him, uh, uh, just to actually show him and to startle him and to stir him up because he is actually living in a false theology um, and his own self-righteousness. And so the loving thing to do with Walter, if we're out with him, is to actually offend him. Uh, hmm. And I know that sounds really, really hard to understand, but that, that, that is, that's how Luther saw it. That's how the New Testament, thinking of uh, the Apostle Paul, he had Timothy and Titus. Um, as, he went to the, um, as he went to the Gentiles, he didn't, uh, 
you know, he, as, excuse me, when he went to the Jews uh, with one, one group, I'm trying to remember if it was Titus or Timothy, um, I think it was with Timothy, he had him circumcised. But then in Galatians, when he was with the Judaizers, uh, I believe it was Titus. I might have might have him mixed up here. But he refused with the Judaizers. He refused to have Titus circumcised because he wasn't going to give in to their false law. And so it's always about fighting for the truth. And so if we're going to wound the conscience of somebody who is um, struggling with alcoholism, by no means we don't wound their conscience. We respect them and we love them. But someone that's stuck in a false theology, hmm. we need to startle them, we need to shake them up, and we need to knock them off center because they are believing a lie. Interesting. Wow. That's Thanks for adding some clarity to that, because this is a tough issue, especially for people who do have either a problem with that self-righteousness or a problem with alcoholism. There needs to be clarity on that. So I, that was Yeah, and depends. And the, the, really, the, the fundamental difference is whether or not we're dealing with a weak Christian or a legalistic Christian. Yeah, yeah. Weak, weak Christians... We Christians, we destroy every bottle of booze within 100 miles, and we, 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 we fight for them, and we love them, and we serve them, and we take care of them, because we don't want to damage their faith. Hmm. But when someone like Walter comes along, he actually has no faith that can be damaged. Uh, so we're not damaging his faith. He is living in a complete lie, hmm. and so we need to offend the lie. We need to hurt that lie. We need to unsettle him. We need to jar him loose, and we do that by not giving in to his false law, but we do it by opposing it. Or all the members of the church can mow their grass with a beer in one hand until he goes crazy. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Okay, well, that was good. Let's go on to the next one, the mystical friend. Now we're going to take a little bit of a turn from the previous ones. The mystical friend Jesus, who is a bodiless, spiritualized being living in the heart that exalts signs, wonders, and emotions. Tell us about this false understanding of Jesus. Yeah, this false Christ, uh, briefly, is a false Christ where we actually take Jesus' human nature and his divine nature. Now, we, ha- we, we have to make sure that we realize that uh, we confess in the creeds, the Apostle Creed, especially in the Apostle's Creed, that uh, Jesus has ascended to the Father bodily. And so he rose from the grave, and so Jesus now is existing bodily resurrected at the right hand of the Father. And so Jesus is not just some ethereal, spiritized being off in the, uh, you know, the uh, you know, bouncing on the clouds of heaven. Uh, he's actually bodily risen. And so what happens with this false Christ is that people take Jesus and they take his divine nature and his human nature, and they strip away the human nature of Jesus. They, they toss it off in the distance. So you are just left with a divine, spiritized being. Uh, you know, an ethereal, floaty uh, being. And then they take that uh, floaty, spiritized being, this, this, this divine puff cloud of Jesus, and they say, well, we have to locate that somewhere. And we take that and we shove that deep down in the caverns of our heart. And so it's way, way down deep in the caverns of the heart. So then when we talk about Jesus, and what does Jesus have to say for us, uh, say to us, uh, now, you and I would say, well, we know what Jesus has to say for us and to us by his holy word. But this false Christ, if a person subscribes to this false Christ, how would they know how Jesus is speaking? Well, they would look to their heart, and they would listen for that still, small voice in their heart, in the caverns of their heart, where that spiritized, ethereal, puffy Jesus is dwelling. And from the deep caverns of his heart, he is whispering these sentiments um, and giving these uh, guidance and direction to them. And more often than not, it's usually contrary to the Word of God. I mean, mm-hmm. that's uh, hard to say, but that's just the reality. So 
So this false Christ is uh, stripped of the human nature, and this false Christ is also removed from the Word and sacraments and located in the mystical heart of experience and feelings and emotions of the person. Well, and it's so prevalent that uh, to, to certain people, we would sound like we're we have to be wrong. We, it can't be true that God doesn't speak to me internally and tell me whatever it is he wants to tell me on a regular basis. That's what I've been taught my whole life. That's what Beth Moore teaches. That's what Joyce Meyer te- teaches. All these people are teaching this. And again, it's so prevalent. For me, I was really um, uh, refreshed and encouraged and relieved, like, oh, finally. I don't have to try to keep you know mustering up the voice of God internally. Because I wasn't having much luck with that anyway. You know, <laughs> I was frustrated because everybody was telling me all the things that God was telling them, and I was not getting those messages myself. And when I learned, you know, just looking through the New Testament, trying to find the teaching where we're taught to constantly seek to hear individual personalized messages from God, they don't exist. There's no, there are no passages teaching that anywhere. You know, and, and when, I, when I realized that, for me, it was very freeing. It, would, it, it relieved me. But for some, I think it's really hard to hear that because, frankly, they like this mystical Jesus. He tells them things that, you know, they want to hear because it's really themselves. It's not Jesus at all. Yeah, yeah. You know, if, if you don't mind, I'm just going to read just, just a paragraph sure. um, from the book uh, in this chapter. Uh, just kind of make sure we, we were really clear for the listeners. Um, it says this, uh, stayed here in this chapter, it says, The real Jesus truly dwells in the Christian's heart through the Holy Spirit who comes to us in baptism and God's Word. Furthermore, the real Jesus is also cemented to the Christian by faith. It is as if the Christian and Jesus are as one person by faith. And finally, as Christians eat the real Jesus' body and drink his blood in the Lord's Supper, they can know Jesus is truly present within them to forgive, renew, and strengthen them. Zach and Mindy, though, who we learn meet in this chapter, they do not believe this because they have stripped away the human nature of Jesus and recreated the re- recreated. Jesus to be a mystical friend, a mystical, spiritualized, false Christ dwelling deep down in the cavern of the heart. And so, again, you know, we're, we're not we're not saying that the that Jesus doesn't impact our heart, but what we're criticizing is this view of separating the human nature of Jesus from from Jesus and also disconnecting him from the Word. Mm-hmm. And when we do that. Our Christianity is all about looking inward rather than looking outward, and that's a huge shift that I had to go through myself, is understanding that my hope lies outside of myself. My hope lies in the Word and sacraments. My hope lies in me looking away from my sinful heart. And typically when I look inward, what do I find? I find layer upon layer upon layer of uh, wickedness of my own sinful depravity. So my hope does not lie within. My hope lies outside of myself in the real Jesus Christ who comes to me and comes to impart his grace and his gifts to me. So it's always clinging as a beggar. My hands are always open. Our hands are always open, always receiving the free gift of the warm bread, uh, receiving those gifts from the Lord, always receiving, always consuming, always taking, um, but never looking to ourselves as if we are independent and have it all together. Hmm. Well, and if you are looking for for Jesus to speak to you in, in a way that's outside of word and sacrament, if you're looking for that, you know, that voice that's going to specifically give you personalized messages, um, man, there's just so much that can go wrong and does go wrong. And so 
instead of it, for, for me, I didn't think of it like, um, you know, I really wanted and I really needed to get this thing from God and I was disappointed because I didn't get it. But now I've just given up and I just figure, well, God's word, I'll just have to be good enough. You know, that's all I'm going to get. That, that, that's not how I look at it at all. I, I love the, um, the assurance that that gives me. That's what God wants for us. He wants to give us assurance. He doesn't want to give us a limited uh, version of Himself. So I think when you come from that worldview, though, or that or that Christian worldview of the this mystical understanding of what Jesus is supposed to do, it's really hard to give it up because you feel like you're giving up something that is more, but it's actually not more. It's it's false, and it's actually preventing you from hearing from the real God. Who, who presents himself in word and sacrament, not in a personal, mystical, inner voice sort of a thing. So, yeah, uh, it does need to be explained really thoroughly for people to understand, I think, that this, this understanding that comes, you know, it's more of an original, this is, what, this is what the original reformers taught. The mystical thing came in um, about 100 years after the Reformation got kicked off. We had the birth of the Pietist movement, which is something I've been studying quite a bit. And it's really interesting because a lot of these guys had pretty good intentions. You know, some of what pietism was trying to do was, was you know, get people back to reading their Bibles and praying more, you know, all these things that are good. But they also brought in with it all this mysticism uh, from some of the previous medieval writers. So mysticism has been around for a long time. Yeah, absolutely. With You know, this is one of the things that we hit in this chapter, too, is, is the the uh, bad fruits of what we would say pietism. And so instead of looking, you know, to Jesus who is for us, we look for a Jesus in us, yeah, you know, instead yeah. of, instead of looking to what has Jesus done for me, or uh, more specifically, here's a perfect example. When we read the Bible, either we read the Bible saying, what does this say? Or what does this mean to me? And so often we read the Bible and we read a passage, and we say, what does this mean to me? And right there, when we say that, what does it mean to me? We've actually taken the scripture, we stripped it out of the Bible, and we put it into the caverns of our own intellect and reason and heart, and then we mull it over and we refashion it um, according to our false Christ that we have, versus what does it say? We let the scripture remain in its context and what it is there, you know, as it is there for me, and then let God's word shape and form me from the outside in. Hmm. And so fundamentally, there, there, there are different ways of reading the Bible. And so somebody subscribing to the mystical friend, false Christ, uh, you can pick them out real quickly, because when they read their Bible, even the questions of how they approach the Scripture, how they read the Scriptures, um, is fundamentally different than somebody mm-hmm. subscribing to the real Jesus. Yeah, I feel like God was telling me such and such. I really feel like God did this and did that in my heart or whatever. This feeling-based Christianity is just its a train wreck. I'm I'm glad to be away from it completely. And when I'm, you know, I still have a lot of friends who think that way. And when I hear them, I just, I just like, ah, <laughs> I don't know how to respond. It's like, oh, man, how can I even, you know, there's like 10,000 bad layers of theology here that I don't even know where to start sometimes. But anyway, yeah, uh, let's let's go on because I think, I think this, this could be another uh, bunny trail. The next one that you have, the feminized Jesus. He spends his time cuddling little lambs and coddling emotions because he has been stripped of his masculinity. Now, of course, this one does t- kind of tie into the the mystical friend version of Jesus, too, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. With this one, we meet um, a person named Ava, and she is a 
very committed third wave third wave feminist, and uh, um, she very much uh, has a problem with the masculinity of Jesus. And so, what she she does is she does this: is she she separates um, really what we would call this binary opposition, binary opposites of uh, male and female. She doesn't like to uh, have those two categories. Uh, because she doesn't want women dependent upon men, and she doesn't want men and women compared to each other. So she kind of rejects this whole bar- this whole binary opposite of male and female. And in the process of doing that, she, um, as well, when she comes at Jesus, she she strains out, like a strainer. If we were to take Jesus and we were to pour him through a strainer, hmm. she, she filters out anything of his masculine qualities, uh, masculine characteristics. And so then what we're left with is basically... Um, a, a, a false Christ that has uh, been stripped of anything masculine, and he ends up being, boy, he just ends up being just a, a feminized, uh, very uh, emotional, cuddly, false Christ. And I know Chris Rosebro has always, he's picked up on this in his programs where he talks about, uh, boy, what does he say, the Viva Saloon Jesus with the feathered hair, oh, yeah. uh, the great complexion. <laughs> and so this is the false Christ that we end up with. And you know, when it comes down to it, uh, you know, Ava, she cannot uh, process or have a Jesus that's masculine because a masculine Christ is actually threatening to her own feministic uh, endeavors. And so, uh, again, this false Christ is is one that uh, is all about feelings. It's all about uh, cuddling little lambs, um, all about uh, the emotional uh, type praise songs that we can hear so often. And uh, we, we see this at play, and in the part of the book here, I focus on, you know, Jesus is the Good Shepherd. And, you know, I would encourage the listeners to go to Google and type Jesus Good Shepherd, and all the photos that we're going to see are going to be him cuddling these well-groomed lambs. And it's like these lambs just came from the groomers. I mean, they have, you know, feathered or, you know, fluffed up hair, and he's holding them like a little kitten, and he's smiling and embracing these little lambs. But the problem with that is... Those pictures, too, as well, have been stripped of the masculinity of Jesus, because when we talk about Jesus as a good shepherd, what makes him a good shepherd is not that he cuddles with lambs, but that he actually fights for the lambs against the wolves. Mm-hmm. And it's very, very hard to find, you know, a picture of Jesus or a picture of the good shepherd um, beating down a wolf. I mean, I found a couple pictures out there, and there's, boy, there's one picture from a church in Eastern Europe. And it's a picture of the Good Shepherd, and he's stepping on the head of a lamb or a sheep that's bleeding, and it looks like the sheep had just been attacked. And so he's stepping on the head to hold it back, and he's reaching forward with his hands, and he's got his hands around the throat of a wolf, and he's got his fist up, and he's like pummeling this wolf <laughs> to defend the sheep. Wow. And I'm like, that is the Good Shepherd. You know, what makes the Good Shepherd good is that he lays down his life for the sheep. Hmm. That is the masculinity of the Good Shepherd coming through. But we don't have that uh, with this false Christ, the feminized. The feminized can only support us by cuddling us and singing to us and holding us. But boy, my goodness, we need much more than just a feminized Jesus. Yeah, We boy. need the, you know, the other Christ who fights the wolves, fights, fights against death, fights against Satan, and, uh, you know, redeems us and, and protects us. That ties into the uh, problem that a lot of Christians have with anybody doing any kind of discernment ministry, quote-unquote. You know, just get along. Why can't you be more loving? Because we want to fight against things that are false. We want to fight against things that are wrong, that are hurting people. That's the loving thing to do. 
You know, that's the side of, of what it means to love that's been ignored in many cases. You know, to, to really love someone means you will protect them and you will fight for them when necessary, which means you've got to be mean, <laughs> you know, to the enemy. You know, mean, mean in, a, in a general way. Obviously not mean all the time or, you know, overly angry or whatever. But, yeah, there are, there is a time when um, – we need to fight against false teaching. I, I had a really inter interesting conversation with my wife just uh, – I think it was just yesterday. We were talking about – you know, because we've, we've both come through the ringer and we've been in churches where there was just a lot of false teaching going on. But, but it was, you know, a big church, very popular, a lot of friends, a lot of nice people. didn't seem possible that there could be so much false teaching going on. And what – one one of the questions that comes up is why why does God allow that? Why doesn't God stop that? Why doesn't He step in and you know tell us that this is wrong? Well, the answer is He does in His Word. He's made it very clear in His Word that some things are wrong and need to be confronted. You know, all the verses about false teaching. I, I have a I have a page on my blog that I keep uh, trying to get people to read as many times as possible, and that is I call it shocking things you're not supposed to know, and it's just a whole bunch of Bible verses where where Jesus and the apostles are confronting false teaching and warning against false teachers and warning against people who are getting rich off of you because of you know their so-called ministry, and so when we say, you know, why doesn't God do something to stop this? Why doesn't he speak, you know, specifically if you're looking for the mystical Jesus to give you the answer, you know, like, you know, let's say you're going to a bad church, maybe a church that has this kind of feminized version of Jesus, and you say to you in a prayer, God, I want to know if this is really you or not. I want to, I want to know in my heart. You're not going to get the answer because your heart's deceitful. But in his word is where you're going to hear him speak very clearly. So as soon as the church starts taking God's word and placing it a few notches lower, then you're not going to hear God speaking and you're going to hear yourself pretending to be God in that internal mystical, maybe feminized pansy Jesus. So I'm sorry, I just went on a tangent there, but yeah, all this stuff is no, kind, of, great. It's great. kind of connecting great. for me. Uh, there, so there's so much clarity in God's word and Jesus does say things. I, I don't know if I told you this or I was telling this to somebody else, but about uh, six years ago, maybe uh, something like that. For for a time, I, I volunteered to do a youth group, to be a youth group leader, and we just read through the book of Matthew, and I hadn't done that for a while, for a long time, actually, you know, because I was going to a church that didn't teach that, and I, I wasn't part of a Bible study or anything that was doing that, so I just was reading it, you know, starting at chapter one and just going through it, and I remember thinking, man, there's some really cool stuff in here. And there's some really um, confrontational stuff in here. Jesus is not a mamby-pamby at all. He's uh, he's very confrontational. He's very challenging. And, 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 you know, that's another way of saying he was masculine, not not in a male-female sort of a way, but in a in a true leadership sort of a way. Yeah, I, there was very little cuddling that I saw. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, and the, and the thing is, when it really comes down to it, is we're always to be shaped by the real Jesus, always to be, you know, always to be formed by him. And, uh, you know, when we're not, I mean, boy, my goodness, if we're going to church and, and all we're doing is just having a warm, cuddly place, you know, we're not being shaped and confronted by God, by the Lord Jesus Christ and His Word, 
then there's really no difference between the church and a common rotary club. I mean, uh, you know, there, there's nothing wrong with having good fellowship and camaraderie with friends and having a safe space to hang out and relax and so forth. All that's fine and good, but if that's what the church has become, then my question would be, what is the purpose of the church? Um, really, there isn't. I mean, you can, you can accomplish that at any number of clubs and organizations in this world. But the, the reality is, we come to the, the church, and we're part of the church because we're ever being shaped and formed by the Lord Jesus Christ and His Word. Being brought to repentance, being given faith, confronted and challenged, um, and restored and continually shaped into what it means to be a Christian in this life. And so the feminized, though, um, does none of that. The feminized is basically, uh, you know, uberly, <laughs> uberly tame, uh, which kind of, you know, not, not to segue too fast in the next part, but really ties in with, you know, the teddy bear falls Christ, which yeah. we'll, you know, cover in the next chapter. Well, I was going to say there's also a connection in this, this uh, person, this, this type of person who thinks this way, this idea that they separate all of the world into male and female. It's very similar to the social justice warrior who separates the world into oppressed and oppressor. And a lot of times they're almost the same because they view the oppressors as inherently male and the oppressed as inherently female. So this is a big postmodern discussion. Um, yep, and, that, and back to that story with, with Ava in, in the book, um, that is her purpose and her reason uh, you know, that she has actually experienced some very, very bad situations uh, being sinned against by, by men. Mm-hmm. And the, the reality, what we have to keep in mind, is, is the, the, the key attribute of what it means to be a man um, is not that we have power to oppress women. Um, I would say that a person, a man going around flaunting his power and then putting women underneath his thumb is not, you know, not even close to a definition of a man. He's a, he's a coward, a person who does that. But rather, what does a man do? We, we hear in Ephesians, what makes a man a man is that he's going to sacrifice everything for his wife. He's going yeah. to bleed and die and give everything to uphold his wife. And this is what we ought to be teaching our children. You know, our, you know my son, I talk to my son all the time. I have, my, my, I have three children, and my, my son is 10, and my daughter's 8, and they fight, and she'll hit him, and he'll hit back, and guess who gets... Guess who gets the heat? Mm-hmm. My son does. And he's like, well, she hit me. I'm like, I don't care. You don't ever hit. You are stronger than her. You are, you are not only older, but you are stronger. And your job to use that power is never to enforce harm upon your sister, um, but you are to always be sacrificing and dying and serving um, as a sake of love uh, for your future wife and for your mom and your sisters, for goodness sakes. Yeah, and, and, so, and, the, and the correct understanding of what it means to be a man doesn't give us all these extra rights above women. It actually is the opposite. It's a heavy responsibility that we we should feel the, the weight of every day. We should feel the weight of, wow, God made me a man or maybe even made me a husband and a father. That's that's something that we should take very seriously, not something that says, hey, I'm a man. That means I get to go on the weekends and go snowmobiling while my wife takes care of the kids or whatever. That That's, the, that's kind of the Americanized – you know, uh, typical redneck NASCAR, whatever, wife beater version of manhood, which <laughs> we are not espousing at all. Uh, yeah, so the true man is actually a protector, and he's willing to give himself uh, in in favor of those who are actually in some way weaker than himself. So yeah, that well, that's a good to define. And, and the things. thing is, we have to keep. 
the thing we have to keep in mind is that we as the Church, we're, we're talked about in the feminine, you know, and the Church is always talked in the feminine, and Christ is the bridegroom. That's right. And He's the one who serves us. And and so, really, you know, boy, you know, I, we got in talking about this, you know, if a person comes from a feministic background, they're probably going to be enraged at hearing this. But the reality is this, is the fundamental key characteristic, again, is not the way of power. Uh, it's not the way of power to lord life over each other. It's about service. And so I look at my marriage with my wife. Um, she trusts me and she respects me uh, because, by God's grace, she knows that I would do anything for her, that I would die for her, that I would bleed, that I would give it all for her and the kids. And that is why there's respect. And I w- I'm willing to do anything, to bleed, to die, to suffer for her, because I know she trusts me. And so there's a reciprocal process of, of uh, you know, love and uh, trust, of, of sacrifice and trust between the husband and the wife. And that's the same thing that we see with the Scriptures. We trust and we love and we respect the Lord Jesus Christ because He died and bled for us. Mm-hmm. Um, as a true man, you know, who, who, who did not just, you know, uh, we think of John 3.16, that for God so loved the world that He what he gave, you know, God, for God so loved the world, he didn't have a fluffy, he, he, he loved the world so much that he bled and died, he came, he sent his son to come and die for us, and so that's fundamentally the issue here, uh, where we see the masculine nature of Christ uh, being that one of, of, of going to that cross and bleeding and dying and rising and all for us, um, but when you have a false Christ, all that's stripped away, yeah. and all you're left with is cuddling lambs. Well, and if people have an understanding or a, or a false understanding that Christianity is directly connected to the British Empire or the Holy Roman Empire, you know, all these versions of Christendom, which are out conquering, yeah, that's that's not what we're talking about here. That's not historic Christianity as it's understood from the Bible. That got added later. So, yeah, there there are things that, you know, uh, um, maybe a social justice warrior or, or a feminist, they would look to in history and say, you know, well, this is what you Christians believe, and this is why I believe what I believe, and so th- these things do need to be clarified. Because yeah, the the actual Christian um, version of power is that we're not about power; we're about surrender. We're about giving ourselves. And Jesus laid down his life as an example. He didn't lay down his life so that he could later go out and you know teach us how to be killers. It just doesn't make any sense at all. So. Well, that was a good tangent. Okay, so we're on the last one here. The teddy bear, which is uh, – <laughs> I'm sorry I'm laughing because it's funny, but it's – people do see Jesus this way. The teddy bear Jesus, who is a cuddly, safe, and tame, crossless, and anti-intellectual savior. Tell us about this wonderful fella. He sounds so nice. Yeah, this one is, is very similar kind of to the uh, feminized false Christ. But this this Christ is – Boy, is is a teddy bear. I mean, absolutely a teddy bear. Uh, if you think about a teddy bear versus a real bear, right? Uh, a teddy bear has been, you know, basically tamed. Uh, no fangs, no claws, no big growl. Uh, this teddy bear sits on your bed and it cannot interrogate you, cannot overcome you, and is there to hug and squeeze when you want. And so <laughs> this teddy bear is all about being sanitized from the uh, blood of Mount Calvary, uh, sanitized from all the suffering and death itself, and it's also sanitized and, and, and pulled back where it's not going to, this false Christ, the teddy bear, is not going to uh, interrogate you or challenge you intellectually speaking. And so um, 
boy, man, if, if, if we can, if our, if our listeners can think of, uh, maybe they've, they've seen, uh, the precious moments figurines yeah. before, yeah. uh, you know, those precious moments figurines, this is a precious moments type false Christ. And so this is a, a, a false Christ that people create in their mind. And this one is tame, uh, you know, has been, 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 uh, tamed and is not going to challenge, but it's always there to give that warmth and comfort. And, uh, you know, if, if we think about this just briefly, uh, if we think about C.S. Lewis's book, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there's a section in that where, oh, boy, I'm trying to think which character. If it was yeah, Susan, I know what I you're talking about. He's, yeah, Susan is he, says is to the he beaver, safe? Right? Yeah, she, she goes, you know, Susan says to the beaver, you know, about Aslan, the great lion, you know, is he a safe lion? And uh, <laughs> the beaver laughs, like, you know, he's not safe. Uh, but he is good, yeah. and that's that's the real Jesus Christ. The real Jesus Christ is not a teddy bear. He's not safe. He definitely is not safe, but he is good. And what we mean by that, simply saying, is that the real Jesus Christ is not going to be um, hostage to our own endeavors. He's not going to be hostage to what we want him to be. Uh, the real Jesus bleeds and dies on the cross. Uh, the real Jesus rises from the grave. The real Jesus walks on water teaches, uh, you know, in a way that challenges our worldview, and uh, the real Jesus is a lion. He stands above us, hmm. um, and he isn't safe. He, he, he uh, startles us. Uh, we're always caught off guard, but we have to say at the same time the real Jesus is good. Well, this false Christ, though, the, the teddy bear, uh, he's definitely safe, uh, but he's not good. And the reason why he's not good is because since he's a teddy bear, he cannot do anything about sin, death, and the devil. Uh, he just simply sits there on that bed, gives us warm sentiments, and never challenges us intellectually, never challenges us with having to see the blood on the cross, but he's all there to just give us warm, pleasant feelings. But in the end, he cannot stand up against the devil and death itself because yeah. he's just full of fluff. That's a really good analogy because, yeah, a teddy bear is whatever we want it to be, and it's on its own, it has absolutely no power whatsoever. It just sits there, so we have to impose on it our own thing. So, yeah, this is <laughs> this is a really good example of the Jesus that we've created. Uh, and yeah. there's actually uh, – Chris Rice is the guy who helps put together a lot of the exhibits in the Museum of Idolatry page on Pirate Christian. And he hasn't posted these for a while, but he actually was collecting memes on – I think he made a Facebook page or something of all the most ridiculous Christian cutesy memes – you know, the precious moment type memes. And it's, it's really, it's unbearable because they're so corny. But they're all, almost all of them kind of fit in this category of Jesus as teddy bear to make you feel good. Yeah. Well, and the thing is with the teddy bear false Christ is this too, is that many people will hear an anti-intellectualism in the church. In other words, um, you know, people will, will be repulsed by, you know, that's too theological, that's too heady for me, that's too much doctrine, or that's too much dogmatics, and um, that's <clears throat> that's a reaction to uh, the real Jesus, uh, mm -hmm. you know, the, the Jesus of the Bible. And here, here's my contention that I usually share, is that, you know, in first and second grade, you know, we teach our kids photosynthesis. Uh, we, we teach them the, the cell division of, you know, the division of the cell and all those intricate workings, and so we'll teach them photosynthesis, but we will not teach them propitiation. We will not teach them the atonement, because that's too theological. And so we have a real problem as Christians when we allow our kids to be taught things, you know, such as photosynthesis, but then we cry foul 
when we try to teach them propitiation. And so I think really fundamentally the problem, and this is a whole other tangent, but when it comes to youth ministries, um, I'm convinced, utterly convinced, that we need to rise up, uh, you know, rise up and teach sound theological doctrine to our youth these days. We need to equip them to know what they believe and why, and not be afraid to challenge them theologically. Um, I know that the youth in my church, uh, boy, just bright, wonderful, phenomenal uh, young men and women, hmm. and uh, we, we've gotten a group together where we're reading the Book of Concord together, reading Law and Gospel together, and they're eating it up. Oh, that's um, great. You know, I got a got a 17-year-old I'm going to meet this afternoon with, and, and we're, we're studying philosophy together, we've studied Greek together, and he's learning Latin. Wow. Uh, these kids are phenomenal, and yet the Church, what we do is we say, here, we give them a fluffy teddy bear, and we tell them to be comfortable, and ultimately many times in the Church we're, we're equipping them for failure when they get to college, because when they get to college with that teddy bear in their hands and they come onto the campus, they don't have theology, and they don't have the understanding of God's Word, uh, to weather the storm of college. Yeah, an and, atheist uh, professor so, takes the teddy bear and rips it to shreds right in front of him, in front of the whole class. Right, yep. right, right. You know, Lord have mercy. I mean, uh, God forgive us as a church. Well, and, and um, man, you're you're on one of my favorite topics. The anti-intellectualism thing uh, is something I'm going to talk about at the Pirate Christian Conference. And I got a hold of a book a few months ago called Anti-Intellectualism in America by Richard Hofstetter. It was written in something like 1962 or something. And I, I actually mentioned it to Chris Roseborough just a month or so ago, and he, he got a copy on his Kindle and read it, and he just was blown away. And this has been going on for a long time. It's deeply ingrained in American culture, and it doesn't seep into the church. It actually comes from the church, according to Hofstetter anyway, that the uh, especially the revivalist movement – and what we were just talking about with like um, 1800s and Charles Finney and a lot of the people yep. associated with that time period, it was a very distinct – and it does also come honestly from the Baptist and Methodist, which was uh, a movement in America that said anybody can be a pastor, anybody can plant a church. Just get on your horse, take your Bible and go out into this new frontier because there's this country's grown so fast. We, we need churches and pastors and we don't have time for theology and in fact, you'll probably be better off because you'll be more sincere if it's just you and your and your Bible. So that's ingrained in American culture. And now – Oh, don't even get me started talking about the television industry and the marketing business and the advertising business and how we as a an American culture have been dumbed down to such an extent that it's absolutely staggering. It takes time. It takes years even to realize how far you've been dumbed down. You know, like my own story, I, I stopped watching television completely. I shouldn't say completely. We'll watch a show that's recorded, like a DVD or something. But just having TV service, we discontinued about five years ago. And I remember saying, or my wife saying, that just a couple of months into this little experiment, she said, I feel smarter. And she wasn't making a joke. It, and I really think there's something to that. American culture has been inundated with just constant, a constant flow of nothingness and propaganda and silliness and sound bites and cliches and marketing gimmicks that we can't even, you know, construct a sentence or have a cohesive thought anymore. And, and so, yeah, the, the teddy bear Jesus is not going to help you. Um, okay, so I was on a tangent again there. But, yeah, this is one of my favorite topics. I find it very fascinating. And I'm not an intellectual. I never even graduated college. I'm an artist for a living. But I'm just uh, fascinated by this. And I'm reading more books than I ever have. And I feel like I've made room in my brain by removing – some of the crap, honestly, that I uh, just as an ordinary 
member of society I was allowing in, I just said, I don't, I don't, I don't want to spend my time listening to popular culture so much anymore. I want to actually use my brain a little bit more. And, um, I, I think that's something that I, I just, I'm always encouraging people to do. I don't want to sound legalistic about it. Cause now we're back to <laughs> maybe Walter, you know, you got to do <laughs> this and you can't do that and all that sort of thing. But anyway, well, I think, I think fundamentally the, 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 the idea is this idea that Christianity cannot, uh, you know, to, to, to hold back in the intellectual understanding, um, you know, and just this, 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 this reaction against, you know, being too theological. Um, and, and again, you know, when it comes down to that, you know, I, I'm amazed at, at uh, and I'm guilty of this myself, I'm amazed at, you know, how much we memorize our fantasy football uh, statistics and sports. And, you know, <laughs> think about this, too. I, you know, I'm reminded of going, we're big NDSU, North Dakota State University fans here in North Dakota, and we go to, every year we go to see the Bison play. And I remember going there for the first time with my son, and, you know, he's asking what a first down is and, and what a field goal is. Goal is. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you imagine if I came into the NDSU uh, Fargo Dome and I just said, you know what, these words are too complicated. We <laughs> should actually change them to dumb them down for me. Yeah. Uh, everyone would look at me and they would say, get out of here. If you're going to be a football fan, you need to learn the terminology. You need to learn what it means to have a first down. You need to know what the word offsides means and uh, what a pigskin is and a jersey and uprights and all these things. You have to learn it to be a part of it. Uh, and so... When it comes to that, you know, when it comes to that, we expect people to rise up and to learn it, um, you know, when it comes to sports or baseball and so forth. But yet when it comes to the church, you know, we, boy, you know, we go the opposite way. And, yep. and I think, I think we, we underestimate and we do a disservice to people coming to the church. And we're actually, boy, by saying, you know, man, they can't learn that, we're actually disrespecting them, right? Um, rather than saying, hey, you know what, uh, the Kyrie, let me explain to you what that word means, where it comes from, and why it's so rich. And then that person that understands the Kyrie can understand it in the full context of 2,000 years of church history, and then to be able to sing the Kyrie and to do it with the scriptures and the people from the days of old, knowing that we're confessing it not only with people across the world, but with a, you know 2,000 years of church history which then gives it depth and meaning. And so again, this false Christ, the teddy bear, uh, limits all that, and it actually is not, does absolutely nothing for us except set us up for failure. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, going back to the youth group idea, I think one of the most common um, understandings, I guess, or the, the way people view how a youth group can be successful is that the kids need to have a really good group of friends there, that they have a a close relationship with, and they need to have a really strong emotional experience at a youth group, especially at a youth group retreat or a youth group conference. If they can have a really powerful encounter with God or whatever the phrase is, then they'll carry that with them and that'll help them have a strong faith into their adulthood. And it's just not true. That emotional experience fades away. Everybody knows that. You come back from a youth group conference and a week later, really nothing in your life has changed if you haven't, you know, grasped anything new. So yeah, this anti-intellectualism thing, it's, it's a big pet peeve of mine. And I think it's yeah. almost, it's almost like a, um, even when you use the word intellectualism, it has bad connotations right off the bat. And all, all it, I think what you and I are saying is just, Words have meanings and ideas are important and we need to have the right word attached to the right idea. 
you know, we're not talking about wearing a bow tie and spending the rest of your life in a library and becoming a professor. That's not what it means to be intellectual. We're just using the broad term intellectualism, you know, in, in, the, in the most positive sense. I mean, the, the Bible is a collection of ideas given to us by God, and words are used to transmit those ideas. And it requires yep. our intellect to really grasp all of that. And God gave us our intellect. He gave us our mind. He told us to worship him with our mind. So it's all good. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's the thing is, is, is simply saying to know what we believe and why we believe it. Yeah. You know, to, to understand this is what I believe in, to be able to testify and articulate and understand it and defend it, you know. And uh, this, yeah, indeed, this, this does come back to, uh, you know, comes back to even our Sunday schools. You know, what, what is the intent and purpose of our Sunday school and kids club? We, we started a kids club last year here at Zion Lutheran Church, and my whole intent and purpose of starting it is to get them going on the small catechism early, hmm. uh, to get my first and second graders going on the catechism, to know the chief parts, to be able to confess them and understand how they work. So by the time that they get to confirmation, that I could take it to uh, basically, uh, you know, take it up a little bit uh, higher notch as far as understanding it to prepare them. Uh, we only have them for several years, and so that's that's the issue at hand here. Um, but when we go the way again, like that, that teddy bear, uh, we 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 strip that, and we, yeah, we just we don't want to challenge them too much, and we don't want to make it unsettling. Um, but I again, I would I would argue that. Uh, if that's the way we want a church to be, then what's the purpose of the church? Yeah. We, we could just join a common rotary club and save everybody a lot of time. Well, and it's it's true that people, maybe not right away, but in general, people, pref they prefer to be challenged. They prefer it when you think more highly of them and you think that they're capable more than maybe they even realize themselves that they're capable of. And so that's, I think that's exactly what you're talking about. By the way, I want to mention, I don't know if I mentioned this in the last time we talked, that you've got a website with a lot of really good uh, material, like teaching material, PM Notes. Is that what, pmnotes.com? Yeah, um, actually, it's, it's uh, the PM Notes was, it started a long time ago. Yeah. I would write out weekly emails to my parish and, and people started saying, hey, pastor, this is going to my spam box and so forth. So I just, I started a blog and I was real original. I was pastormattrichard.org. <laughs> and so it, it's just basically notes uh, from my desk. It's sermons and collections. And so it's basically my personal blog. And, and the reason I put stuff on there is just it's uh, to be a blessing to my local church. And so I put the sermons on there for my local church. It's all intended and purpose for the churches that I've served, but then as a result of that, other people have been able to go on there and enjoy it too as well. Yeah, so there's there's hundreds and hundreds of articles, uh, hundreds of sermons. Um, there's uh, one, there are PDF teaching sheets. It's basically these complex doctrines boiled down into a simple sheet. Right. Um, there are videos, um, podcasts, all sorts of stuff on there from the last seven years or so. I've yeah, I've enjoyed it. I, I like a two years ago, I was printing some stuff off and um, I showed it to my pastor and he thought it was really helpful and he used some some materials and I kind of forgot about it until just um, from the last time we talked. And so I encourage our listeners to check that out. So it's Pastor Matt blog? Richard. Yeah, PastorMattRichard.org or PastorMattRichard.com. Either one is fine. So okay. It's the same spot. So, you know, if you just go, if you just Google Pastor Matt Richard. Yeah, you'll find uh, it. It should, yeah. Yeah, it come up. So I think of you as being, in the very best sense of the word, kind of a nerd in that you are really good at articulating ideas and taking these complex theological ideas and and explaining them in a way that's a little bit nerdy, but in, a, in the best possible way. Would that be 
<laughs> is that a good appraisal of you or is that insulting? <laughs> That's great. I'll take that. Yeah. You know, I, 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 you know, I'm, I'm a North Dakota boy at heart. Uh, I grew up in North Dakota and I, I will always be a North Dakota boy. And, uh, you know, part of it is... Isn't that a country song? It sounds like a country song. I was yeah, I'm you know, a North Dakota I should, I should boy. Think about it. <laughs> right. And so so part of being a North Dakota boy, you know, uh, I look at it from the perspective of, you know, uh, as a, all my fellow North Dakotans, you know, very, very hardworking folks, individuals here where, where we live, a lot of hardworking farmers. And to be a farmer, you know, here in our area, you got to be... Boy, I tell people I have the most respect for farmers. My uncles are farmers. You got to be able to do mechanics. You got to be able to do agriculture. You got to be able to do business and stocks. You know to buy yeah. and sell all the. So it's a highly, highly, highly complex operation to, to own a farm, and some extremely, extremely competent farmers in my area. Just men in my church that I have the utmost respect for as farmers. But what I find so amazing is that when they get together and you visit, uh, you shoot the breeze and you, you 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 talk simple to each other and you get right off and it's very very humble, very straightforward. And so I guess I kind of look at the same ways. We approach theology, at least my hope is I approach theology, um, all the big concepts and all the mechanics, and to be able just to speak and confess it clearly. So that's kind of my hope, yeah. is to just confess it as clearly and crystal clear as possible to uh, you know, bless the Church and bless my local Church. Awesome. Well, we're, I think we're out of time, and uh, this has been just wonderful. Thank you so much for your book. Thanks for all you're doing. Thanks for taking the time out for these last couple of interviews. And I want to do this again because this is so much fun, and you've got so much to uh, so much to say. Really appreciate it, and God bless you. Yeah, thank you so much, Steve. I really appreciate yep. it. Talk again. Amen. So, what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith. You can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at Christian. Till next time, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.